is a bulletin from CBS News. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas. The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. Did you kill the president? No, I've not been charged with that. In fact, nobody has said that to me yet. No, they're taking me in because of the fact that I live in the Soviet Union. I'm just a patsy. In the basement of the courthouse, policemen, reporters, and cameramen were waiting for Oswald to come down an elevator there to the right to be transferred to another jail. A man named Ruby was waiting too. He's been shot. He's been shot. Lee Oswald has been shot. Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. The people have, that have so much to gain and have such an material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Hello everyone, I am Luke Marshall and you are listening to Things Observed and I think that we have a fun show for you today and we're going to be talking about the JFK assassination but we're not going to be talking about um, some of the stuff that has been talked about more by many other researchers. We are going to be talking about a lesser known aspect of the JFK assassination and it's going to be an aspect of the JFK assassination that I think will be new to many of you. It might not be new to some of you, but nonetheless, it's an aspect that is not talked about as much. And I think that it's really interesting. And most all the information is going to come from a book called Dr. Mary's Monkey. And I am sitting here with the 2014 edition of the book and it's got some information that previous prints don't have in it so that's what I'm going to be working from if you want to learn more for yourself and that's going to be my main source for today and when I have other sources I will mention it but it's a very interesting book to say the least and I think that it's a book that is sometimes truthful in a book that is sometimes not very truthful or maybe not downright deceptive but 
takes some pretty crazy leaps from the facts that Ed Haslam, the author, establishes, and then he kind of just runs with it. But I first heard of this book a while back. It's further back than it even seems. So my father was the one who got me into parapolitics and looking into the deep state or conspiracies, whatever it is that you prefer to call it. My father is the one who really got me interested in that. I'm ashamed to say, but a long time ago, I was just like a Ron Paul type libertarian, and I didn't really have any interest in conspiracy stuff and uh, oh, how things have changed. But it was my dad who, you know, started presenting me with information about, you know, 9-11 or JFK or any other number of things. And I would used to argue with him about it. And over the course of arguing with my dad about these things and trying to debunk my father, I began to realize that I wasn't as smart as I thought that I was and that he was onto a lot of things that he was telling me. And it's kind of a classic story of thinking that your parents are oh so stupid and then you grow up for five seconds and then you realize, you know, my parents were right about a lot of stuff. And boy was my dad right that there was something fishy going on with the JFK assassination. And the JFK assassination was kind of the first conspiracy, as much as I don't really care for that term, that I was really able to open my mind to, and that I was really able to see the different players and the different inconsistencies, and it kind of opened my mind up to the idea that, you know, history isn't always just random, chaotic, meaningless events in, you know, a sequence that ends up producing the world that we have today. But there are powerful people who control the strings in some cases, and that people who have immense power and wealth, they get together in order to secure their power and wealth and even further it. And the JFK assassination is kind of the first time that I was able to do that. And in 2016, we went to the JFK assassination conference together. And um, I think that was the first year we went. We actually went two years. Um, so my birthday is the 23rd. And so we'd kind of go as a birthday trip. And it was always a lot of fun. And one of the things that me and my dad had a really fun time doing was going to these conferences and trying to suss out who was real and who was fake and who was either trying to uh, receive their own attention or who was even possibly an infiltrator or some kind of asset who's sent into the community to cause confusion and to uh, divert people from the truth. And this was, you know, leading up to all the Trump QAnon type people getting into conspiracy circles. It was a little bit before then, but at the assassination conference, we kind of began to see the seedlings of what would grow into being like your quintessential QAnon boomer. So it was like a mixture of 
serious researchers and people who are seriously interested in serious research. Serious, serious, serious. But there was also, yeah, kind of like the proto-QAnon boomer types there. And so me and my dad would uh, have a fun time trying to see who was really bringing together good information and who was kind of diverting people away from the truth. And there was a lot of other people at the conference who I met who were like this. And this guy who wrote the book we're going to be talking about today, Ed Haslam, he is not a QAnon boomer by any means, but his whole talk in front of the conference really stirred up a lot of conversation. It really got people talking and it got people debating about whether it was all real or whether it was, you know, a mixture of real and fake or if it was all just kind of crackpot bullshit. And it was also at this conference that I didn't get to meet Ed Haslam, the guy who wrote this book, but we're not probably going to get to her in this episode, but I met Judith Ferry Baker, who is someone who will end up playing a role later on in the uh, story that we're going to be diving into. She was allegedly Lee Harvey Oswald's lover. She worked at the Riley Coffee Company with Lee Harvey Oswald, and we do know that to be true. But we'll get into her story and whether or not she can be believed later. But so anyways, I got to meet... Uh, her at the assassination conference. I met Jim Mars who wrote Crossfire, which is one of the books that they used uh, to base the JFK Oliver Stone movie on. I got to meet Peter Dale Scott, who was the person who to this day I'm still the most excited person to have met, and I got to talk with him for a little bit, and he is as nice a guy you could ever hope to meet, and he was very, very cool to me, and probably the smartest definitely one of the top three smartest individuals i have ever had the pleasure to meet so it was a lot of fun but anyways that's where i figured out about doctors mary dr mary's monkey and i read the book after the conference and it gave me a lot to think about and we're gonna just dive right into the story that's kind of presented but we're going to be looking at it through a critical lens and we're going to start with the facts that we really can suss out in the story, the things that we know to be true. And then we'll kind of go into what Haslam extrapolates from these facts that he presents and go into his theory and whether or not we can believe it. And a lot of it is going to be on you as the listener to kind of put on your detective hat to be a bit of a sleuth yourself and decide for yourself what you believe and what you don't believe and kind of to draw your own conclusions. So there's kind of going to be a mixture of fact and theory and extrapolation. And so it's going to be fun and we're all going to be able to draw our own conclusions. And I think that it'll be a fun experience for the listener. But anyhow, and the story is just, even if you don't agree with Haslam, Dr. Mary's Monkey is a very fascinating book. It's kind of written like in the Tom O'Neill chaos uh, fashion or like Peter Lavenda and Sinister Forces where it's both in an investigation, but it's also about the author 
doing the investigation. And I'm a bit of a slut for any book that's like that. I always find that to be very fun. And it might be my favorite format for a book just about. But anyhow, I've been talking for about 10 minutes and we haven't even really gotten into the subject at hand. I'm just kind of introducing the subject. And the last thing that I'll say before we dive right on into the subject is just this isn't the most important aspects for the most part of the JFK assassination. And I take umbrage with a lot of the things that people decide to focus in on with the JFK assassination. Like, for instance, when people talk about the magic bullet and how there's seven entry exit wounds and how the bullet ends up on the gurney with JFK and, you know, it's gone through bone, but the bullet, you know, is pretty much unscathed. Yes, that is all ridiculous and it makes no sense. But I think that we shouldn't when we're doing a serious investigation into what happened with the JFK whack uh, focus in on that as much and that we should tend to focus more on the people with connections and who had the means and the motive to do these things and just kind of the network that is behind the whack instead of focusing on things you know like the trajectory of the bullet or you know whether or not Oswald could have gotten three shots off in time from the man liquor Carcano and you know whether it's possible for him to have made that shot from the texas school book depository i'm with everybody on all those things it's all ridiculous and it all doesn't make sense and uh but i think that if that's all that we focus on that we're kind of neglecting some things that are much more important and much more damning when it comes to it because we can know some of the people who were involved with the assassination and we can see that ultimately this was an intelligence agency operation and that there was most likely you know rogue elements in different intelligence agencies who were cooperating with one another in order to achieve this means and we're not going to go a whole lot into my thoughts as to the specific of what all happened. And also, we're not going to be able to explain in this series every single in and out of the assassination. This is not an overview of the, the JFK whack. Perhaps I'll do that someday in the future if that's what people would want to listen to. But that has just been done over and over and over and it's been been done by people who are much more intelligent than i am and who have a lot more knowledge about uh, these events than i do so we're going to be for the most part focusing in on dr mary's monkey and doing a critical examination of the narrative that is presented in there but without further ado let's get into the story and our story starts with a lady named Mary Sherman. And Mary Sherman was born Mary Stoltz in 1913. And when she was only 16 years old, she would actually go study at France at the name of a university that I will almost certainly butcher. So just go check out her Wikipedia or something like that if you want to know what university it was. And she would go on to receive her master's at Illinois University and would go on to do graduate work at the University of Chicago. And the University of Chicago was one of the 
first hubs of nuclear research and it would actually be the home of the first nuclear accelerator that was housed beneath the sports stadium and in 1937 Enrico Fermi would help to create the first sustained nuclear reaction at this accelerator and it was also just a hub of medicine and cutting-edge scientific research and it was the home of all kinds of intellectuals. It was a very prestigious institution. And Mary would do influential research on botanical viruses before she would eventually move on to doing human medicine and get specifically into the realm of cancer research, which will end up playing a big role in what we're talking about over the next episode or two. And she would become an incredibly successful joint surgeon, and she would really make a name for herself in radiology and cancer research, and she would catch the attention of the American Cancer Society head, Dr. Alton Oshner, who was also the chief surgery at Tulane University. And Tulane at this time was also a hub of medical research and all kinds of intellectual activity itself. And it was here that she would become an associate professor and she would also become the head of her own cancer laboratory, all with the help of Alton Oshner. And we will talk more about Alton Oshner before long. So in 1952 is when Mary would move out to New Orleans and she would spend her time both between Tulane University and the Oshner Clinic. And she would receive more and more accolades and acclaim as time went on. And she would eventually become the chairman of the pathology committee of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And her primary of e re uh, excuse me, her primary areas of research would become skeletal radiology and bone cancer treatment. And so it'd be on July 21st, 1964, that Mary was found dead in her room at the patio apartments. And this is really where the story opens up and from here the threads will come undone and the story will unfold and for the longest time all the information related to her death was confined to two local newspapers the New Orleans state item and the Times Picune and so the state item would read on July 21st 1964 Orleans woman surgeon slain by intruder body set afire clues lacking in the killing of Dr. Sherman. And the article would go on to read, an intruder forced his way into a fashionable St. Charles Avenue apartment early today, stabbed a prominent woman orthopedic surgeon to death and set fire to her body. Police apparently had virtually no clues to identify the slayer of Dr. Mary Stoltz Sherman. And the article would stress the burglar burglary aspect of the case. And in the following day, the papers would report that the front door hadn't been forced open and that the alarm system had been turned off. And homicide detectives remarked that they were impressed that the perpetrator knew which car belonged to Sherman, given that the car was missing. And they decided to rule out theft as a motive after finding many valuable things that were left in the apartment, such as a box of fine jewelry and other valuables. And the initial story was that at 4 a.m., a neighbor smelled smoke coming from the apartment, and the police called the fire department, and they would remove a smoking mattress from the home. And shortly after this, police found Sherman's body burned, her burned body, and that it had been stabbed a multitude of times. And when the coroner arrived, there was no murder weapon found, 
but a knife was missing from the knife rack. And Sherman's body was soon identified at the coroner's office after it was taken there. And in the following days, the papers would report that she was a widow who lived alone, as well as other biographical details. And one of the papers would comment, Miss Levi, a neighbor who lived beneath Dr. Sherman for 12 years, usually heard Dr. Sherman when she came in at night. And she said, if there had been a loud commotion, I know I would have heard it, Miss Levi said. The doctor was quiet, but I always heard her come in and take off her shoes, then padding around in her slippers. Sometimes I remarked to my husband, Doc's home again. And so we begin to see that um, there's some kind of strange things going on with the murder, and the murder will just get more and more strange the further that we talk about it. And don't worry, eventually this will end up relating to uh, what we're going to be talking about uh, with all this strange stuff with the JFK assass assassination. So just hold on to your horses. We'll get there in given time. But the last time Sherman was seen was at 4.30 p.m. by her housekeeper. And the press would begin to describe the murder as a mutilation slaying, as well as close friends of Sherman would receive calls saying, you're next. And so this is what the paper is telling us. And so uh, things are just going to kind of keep getting stranger and stranger. And her car would be found eight blocks away. And the handprint that was recovered was unable to be identified. And it was then reported that the hom that homicide was interviewing anybody and everybody and that they were ruling out no person, motive, or method of entry. One article said that Sherman had been away for two weeks prior to her murder. And so this is kind of the story that people were receiving from the two local newspapers at the time. But now we're going to go on to what we can figure out from the precinct report. And so police, police arrived and they met a man by the name of Juan Valdez, who said that he thought he smelled smoke through the ventilation. And this is when he would, you know, go over to investigate what was going on outside of his apartment and he would find the door ajar. And when the cops arrived, he would offer them wet rags as masks so that way they could order the apartment, but the smoke was just too intense. So they would have to wait for the fire department to arrive. And police found the patio door ajar and the sliding door to the apartment cracked a couple of inches. And once the firemen came, they went inside, they removed a smoldering mattress, and that would make it to where the police would shortly after be able to enter into the apartment. And they said that the feet of the white female's body was pointed toward the head of the bed. And then the coroner arrived and the apartment was photographed and there, you know, was further examination. And here is something that the precinct report says. A preliminary examination on the scene determined that there were several possible stab wounds on the left arm of the body, which had not been deteriorated by the fire. There also appeared to be several stab wounds in the torso. There was also a large wound on the inside of the right thigh, just above the knee. From further examination of the body, it was noted that the by the coroner that the right arm and a portion of the right side of the body extending from the right hip to the right shoulder was completely burned away, exposing various vital organs. And if you have a copy of Dr. Mary's Monkey, you can actually see photos from the crime scene. But 
Also, I'm sure that they exist online. I haven't checked myself, but it's hard to imagine that they wouldn't be. And one thing that we'll get into later on, the significance of it, is her whole right arm is missing. There is no right arm. There's no bone or anything to be found. But, you know, her body is there and it's got some stab wounds and the body is badly burned and there's no signs really of forced entry and we have all kinds of valuables that have been left inside the apartment and so as you guys can probably see from what we talked about there's beginning to become more and more inconsistencies coming up and the reporting on the days following the murder were kind of a scattered across a wide variety of things and people in new orleans are sharing all kinds of pet theories about what happened to this prominent doctor um, who you know is mysteriously murdered and the police are not ruling out anybody you know and they kind of just have no idea what the motive or person is behind it and so the report stated that there were no signs of force entry and then it would state the cause of death and it would be a stab wound of the chest and the heart and the left hemothorax and then multiple stab wounds of the abdomen with ensign wound of the liver multiple stab wounds of the left upper extremity and right leg there was a laceration of the labia minora and there were extreme burns on the right side of the body with complete destruction of the right upper extremity and right side of the thorax and abdomen and so there's some more things that we can gather from the precinct report. And now we will move on to what we can gather from the homicide report. So the first half of the homicide report was finished about 10 weeks after the murder. And the second half of the report would be completed just a few days afterwards. But only one of the detectives that had been working on the case signed off on the homicide report. And the other detective who had been working on it and their supervisor did not sign. And this is not typical police protocol. This is something that is kind of strange. And one can only wonder um, if maybe they protested for some reason signing off on the report, if they didn't feel comfortable with their names being attached to it, or if there's possibly some other reason. There's no way for us to know, but it is something worth noting. And the report says that they arrived on scene while firefighters were cleaning up the debris. And so now I will read from the homicide report. The undersigned entered apartment J from the patio, the only entrance to said apartment, into the living room area. Said apartment was composed of a living room, kitchen, bathroom, study, and a bedroom. Located in the bedroom was the body of a white female, apparently dead later learned to be one Dr. Mary Stoltz Sherman, who lived alone, <laughs> which now I'm going to interject. If you see the pictures of the body, it's like, oh, apparently dead. Good detective work, guys. But anyways, back to reading from the homicide report. The body was in a supine position, to the head in the direction of the river, the feet in the direction of the lake, and both legs were outstretched and parallel to each other. The left arm was outstretched and parallel to the left side of the body. The right side of the body from the waist where the right shoulder would be, including the whole right arm, was apparently disintegrated from the fire, yielding the inside organs of the body. 
There was what appeared to be a stab wound in the left arm and also in the inner of the right leg near the knee. The body was nude, however, there was clothing which had apparently been placed on top of the body, mostly covering the body from just above the pubic area to the neck. Some of the mentioned clothes had been burnt completely, while others were still intact, but scorched. And so the suit that had, you know, covered the bedroom and the apartment and just the apartment in general kind of made uh, any fingerprint analysis unusable. And they would also find burnt matches that were found on a chest in the bedroom, and they could not match these matches to any set that existed in the house. And so they kind of insinuate that the killer must have brought these himself. And the detectives would take Mary's jewelry box, her checkbook, and other personal belongings from the scene. And the pathologist who did the autopsy, she said that Mary Sherman hadn't been raped and that she had died prior to the fire being set, as well as before receiving the lacerations on her body and her labia. And the clothes had been placed on top of her body and were neatly folded when found. And a criminologist would actually say that these clothes wouldn't catch fire unless they reached 500 degrees Fahrenheit and they would just kind of smolder a little bit um, in temperatures beneath that. So as we can, you know, kind of gather from that, uh, the fire wasn't burning like a raging inferno. And this is going to become important because, uh, you know, her right arm's missing. There's not really any evidence to indicate that it had been cut off prior to uh, the fire. And as we'll get into in a little bit, um, you know, bone burns at such incredibly high temperatures that there's no way that this fire that didn't catch the whole apartment on fire it's not like the place was engulfed in flames i mean really the fire wasn't all that bad so the idea that it could have burned off her arm and the bone and you know just kind of scorched the rest of her body and you know it didn't even catch the bed on fire the bed was just smoldering it didn't catch the clothes on top of her body on fire there's no way that this could have happened and i mean we might get into it more later, but I mean, when you're talking about, you know, anyways, we'll, we'll get more into that. But there was also a white glove with blood stains that was found in the laundry hamper. And as far as suspects were concerned, the report mentions a peeping Tom who in the past had been perving on another woman in the same apartment complex, a supposed lesbian who talked to the night watchman that night to make a phone call and a friend of Mary's who had a crush on her and he had written her letters and he, in his last letter, asked her to stop coming by because he was catching feelings. They were a little too strong and it was just too hard to see Mary Sherman for him anymore. So these are kind of like the only three people who, uh, you know, had any, the three suspects and something to note about this whole lesbian angle is this is something that was you know kind of a big rumor around new orleans at that time uh, she was a widow who lived by herself and for some reason people were like i don't know drawing these wild conclusions about it being like a lesbian like sex maniac murder which is just like doesn't really happen and it doesn't make sense in in the case but it's kind of funny and just shows you the wild imagination of people in New Orleans in 1964. 
but I'll read a quote from Haslam that um, where he talks about uh, kind of this angle. In the summer of 1993, a friend sent me a copy of a surprising article recalling the mystery of Mary Sherman's murder that appeared in a small alternative newspaper in New Orleans that was entitled A Matter of Motives. In this article, journalist Don Lee Keith challenged the lesbian angle. Don Lee, Don Lee Keith said, From the beginning, the investigation followed but a single direction, the pursuit of a killer who was a lesbian. Police operated on the premise that the dead woman was also a lesbian, unable to find anyone including gay colleagues who worked with Sherman who had any knowledge of her sexual preferences before her death. Keith concluded that the lesbian angle was a red herring to draw attention away from the real motive. Keith's article pointed out that the sex murder rumor was well in place before 9.15 a.m. on July 21st when the autopsy began. Keith also considered the word mutilation to be too strong for the one centimeter cut on the victim's labia. Forensically speaking, genital, genital mutilation would suggest the killer was a man, not a woman. Quoting from his article, instances in which a woman would have mutilated the genitalia of another woman are so rare as to practically be unheard of. When he presented the murder to two or medical examiners from other cities, all four said that it was obviously a case of overkill, with all but one suggesting the fire was an attempt to call attention to the crime scene. All right, and back to me talking just another oddity that keith would point out in this article is the fact that the warren commission began to take testimony on in new orleans on july 21st 1964 so you know kind of a coincidence if you will perhaps it's not a coincidence perhaps that there's more to it uh, once again you'll be able to draw your own conclusions on that but the warren commission rolls into new orleans on the day of Mary, Mary Sherman's murder, only hours after it took place. And another thing that uh, Keith points out in his article is that there is no mention of her employment or Dr. Alton Oshner, her employer. And we'll get into just in a little bit, you know, how prominent a man Dr. Alton Oshner is but before moving off the murder of mary sherman let's just consider a couple additional facts that we can see in haslam's introduction to the 2014 print of his book victoria haas who uh, she lived in the patio apartments and she was a, a, a neighbor to mary sherman she would say that lee harvey oswald would come to the apartments to meet with this juan valdez and if you remember juan valdez was uh the guy who the police talked to and he said that he smelled smoke coming through the ventilation systems and she said that Oswald would meet repeatedly with Juan Valdez all throughout the summer of 1963 and she would tell this to Ed Haslam. Ed Haslam got in contact with her and her husband Owen Haas so we are kind of relying on what Haslam has to say that these people told him but anyways we'll just kind of go on talking about you know, what the Haas allegedly told Haslam. Haas and her ex-husband, you know, moved out of the apartments before Sherman was murdered, but murdered, murdered. And uh, Valdez and Sherman would often be seen by the couple uh, speaking to one another on Valdez's balcony. So Sherman and Valdez are talking. Apparently Lee Harvey Oswald is coming to visit Juan Valdez too according to the Haas, so all very interesting. And 
The Haas apartment shared a wall with the Valdez apartment, specifically the bathroom where the pipes would rest inside that shared wall. And the couple said that they would hear the toilet flush from Valdez's apartment over 20 times a night. New Orleans Police Department would be seen by the couple coming and going from the apartment in the middle of the night. And Juan exhibited other strange behaviors, too. Uh, Owen Haas talks about how he would ask if he could have packages sent to the Haas apartment. And he would say that these packages were orchids and that they were sensitive to the heat outside and to, you know, be careful with them. And all of this, uh, according to Haslam, who says that he spoke with Hawes, stranged him, stranged out Owen Hawes so much that he would actually write a letter to the FBI about all of these oddities. But nothing would come of this letter that he would pin to the FBI. So as stated earlier, you know, Juan Valdez had told the police that he'd smelled the smoke coming from the heating vent. But what Owen would say is that the patio had no central air unit, and instead that they used window units. So Owen Hawes is mentioned in the Sherman police report stating that he had found the door ajar. But Owen claims that he did not tell this to the police and that he wondered if Valdez had been the one to say this using his name. So... There's some more just oddities kind of surrounding the murder. And, you know, we now have mention of Lee Harvey Oswald and Mary Sherman and Juan Valdez, which kind of connects the two of them, both Sherman. And I shouldn't have said, like, not that Sherman and Oswald knew each other, but that both Sherman and Oswald are allegedly talking with Juan Valdez. And just a couple more oddities about the murder. You know, we mentioned that her arm is gone and kind of, you know, the prevailing idea is that the uh, murder of Mary Sherman, uh, that she was killed by being stabbed in the heart and that then her body was set on fire and she has an arm missing and there's no mention by anybody of the arm being cut off or anything like that. And we're supposed to believe, I guess, that the arm burned off in the fire. But bones burn at such incredibly high heats. For instance, when um, people are cremated, they'll go up to temperatures of up to 2,000 degrees. And even at 2,000 degrees, you'll have many pieces of bone left after that. And actually, when you were, you know, get your loved one's remains in an urn or something like that, it's not like the ash from their whole body, really. The body produces a surprisingly little amount of ash. Most all of that is the bones that have been dehydrated in the fire, and then they are pulverized and it's more accurate instead of calling it ash to call it remains because most all, if not all of that, is pulverized bone. And so even at degrees of 500 degrees Fahrenheit, um, there's just, not 500 degrees Fahrenheit, even at temperatures of 2000 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, it doesn't burn away all the bones and bones burn at incredibly high heats. But we know that, you know, based off of the clothes that were placed on top of Sherman's body and that the mattress was smoldering and stuff that, I mean, these fires likely did not exceed temperatures of 
500 degrees Fahrenheit. And, you know, we would expect things to look a lot different than they did if uh, her arm had just been burned off. But we'll probably talk about that later and some more inconsistencies in the murder. But now we're going to talk about Alton Oshner and just follow with me, bear with me, guys, because we will get into how this relates more directly to the JFK assassination. It's not just this rumor from the Haas as told by Haslam that he received from the Haas couple. But before we get into that, I want to talk just a little bit about Mary Sherman's employer, Alton Oshner. <laughs> exactly is Alton Oshner and why is it of importance? So Oshner was a surgeon and a medical researcher and he would spend time as the president of many organizations, the American Cancer Society, the American College of Surgeons, the International College of Surgeons, um, the Alton Oshner Medical Foundation, and he would also serve as the chairman of the section on surgery for the American Medical Association. And Oshner 
on the board of the American Cancer Society would sit alongside Wild Bill Donovan, who was also on the board of the American Cancer Society. And most of you guys probably know, but for those of you who don't, Bill Donovan was in the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, which was the precursor to the CIA. And he was, you know, you know, involved with all the bankers who came into the OSS and that kind of got the start of the, the CIA. So, you know, the Office of Strategic Services, which was like the CIA before the CIA in the kind of like World War II and afterwards time period before the establishment of the CIA. And Oshner was an ultra-conservative anti-communist um, a crazy right-winger, not just like your Ben Shapiro-type conservative, but a very far right. And it's been said that he could basically not help himself but just incessantly talking about his politics. And people said that he was like, had a religious fervor about it. Anti-communism was his religion, and he could not go five seconds without talking about it. And he was not only a conservative man in politics, but also in his personal life. And he would be very conservative in the discipline of his children. And there's a story that goes that he would actually beat one of his children so hardly with a belt that he would uh, break the belt on the child. And he was incredibly successful, as you can probably tell from all the accolades that I just mentioned of Oshner, and he would make a fortune for himself. And in addition to making many advances in medicine, you know, to give him credit where credit was due. And he would be the one who had found the Oshner Clinic and Foundation, and the Oshner Clinic would move multiple times and something that I think is of note is that at one point it was housed in a decommissioned military base and I don't know I just as soon as I hear about something happening at a decommissioned military base I always think that's a bit sus like I just watched the, this is gonna, totally unrelated but I just watched the Woodstock 99 documentary and saw that Woodstock 99 was held on a decommissioned like Air Force base that had been shut down for like lead and you know all kinds of things in the water and then like you know afterwards that's where they would hold this festival that like you know was kind of like the ultima of 99 uh, where you know people would die and it'd be real tragic and or i don't know maybe people didn't die as much as just that there was you know a lot of rape and violence and it ended up in a big firing mess there's probably a couple overdoses or something of the sort anyways that's completely off topic and that's not you know the subject that i know much about but anyways back on to the subject of oshner he would serve as a doctor to many of the ruling class in latin america and uh some of these figures included like the dictator of panama tomas gabriel duque and he would also treat and befriend Anastasio Somoza, who was a Nicaraguan dictator that had to flee his country after being pursued by revolutionaries. And so he would befriend him. And Somoza's personal physician um, would sit on the board of Guy Bannister's Anti-Communist League of the Caribbean. I can't remember the guy's name 
at the moment but you know just kind of gives you an idea of the circle he would also treat the argentinian dictator juan perón and he was also the doctor to who else but texas oil tycoon clint murchison and if you are involved you know in jfk research you almost undoubtedly had heard of clint murchison who was a yeah a texas oil billionaire he was close friends of j edgar hoover and he actually had a hotel where j edgar hoover and all kinds of mafia guys would hang out and he was a close friend of j edgar hoover and j edgar hoover and his uh the deputy director, if I remember correctly, of the FBI at the t of, of the time, Clyde Tolson, would also stay there. And uh, Clyde Tolson uh, was J. Edgar Hoover's gay lover, and J. Edgar Hoover would actually get blackmailed by the mafia uh, for his relationship with Clyde Tolson. And Marilansky would also stay at Murchison's Hotel, and if you have read Whitney Webb's series on the Epstein investigation um, that, that she did, you've probably heard about the beginning of that kind of sexual blackmail operation starting um, in circles that are definitely related to uh, Mayor Lansky, and that would end up compromising J. Edgar Hoover. So it's very interesting to note that they all stayed at Murchison's hotel that he owned. And one can only imagine all the wild and debaucherous things that went down on this hotel, uh, in this hotel. But anyways, so Oshner was the doctor to Clint Murchison. And Murchison would actually give Oshner a Cadillac as a token of his appreciation, or at least, you know, presumably as a token of his appreci appreciation, as well as donating $750,000 to the Oshner Medical Foundation. And, uh, you know, one can only help but wonder if it was because of Oshner's medical work that, you know, Murchison is donating to him and giving him Cadillacs, or if there's maybe something more uh, sinister there. And with Murchison's help, Oshner would create the Information Council of the Americas, which was mo modeled after Radio Free Europe. And I'm sure a lot of you guys know what Radio Free Europe is, but if not, you'll be able to kind of surmise what Radio Free Europe is after I tell you a little bit about the INCA, the Information Council of the Americas, which would disseminate Red Scare propaganda through Latin America. And reportedly, the finances for the INCA came from Oshner himself and his other wealthy, you know, New Orleans capitalist friends, such as Eustace Riley of the Riley Com Coffee Company. And as you guys maybe remember from the beginning of this podcast and maybe already knew yourself, Oswald would work at the Riley Coffee Company for a period of time during his stay in New Orleans. And so all very inter interesting and, you know, while I couldn't find anything that, you know, proved this for sure, I uh, can only help but wonder if the INCA also was receiving funds 
from some sort of intelligence agencies and what kind of involvement there was between INCA and intelligence agencies certainly seems like uh, something that the CIA would have been very interested in. And even if it wasn't initially started as an, you know, a CIA op, uh, I just don't see how that could be around very long before they would want to get their tentacles involved with that, just because that is exactly what the CIA was interested in doing at the time, trying to stop the spread of communism and Marxism and not just Latin America, but across the world, you know, because this is kind of happening at the height of the Red Scare. But Haslam writes in Dr. Mary's Monkey, Later that summer, INCA members descended upon Lee Harvey Oswald, filming his pro-Castro leafleting for television and ambushing him during a live radio broadcast. With a, with a newspaper clipping about Oswald's, quote, defection to the Soviet Union. The records of the Mexican consulate office in New Orleans show that when Oswald obtained his visa for his trip to Mexico, his name followed William Godet, who is known to have worked for the CIA and who edited an anti-communist newsletter which Ochsner financed. There is no doubt that the INCA produced anti-communist propaganda for Latin America, but one has to wonder what other activities it was involved in. And while Haslam will say things later on in the book that I think that we should be a little bit skeptical of, I would agree with him in, in that. What other activities is the INCA involved in? So it's very interesting to look at Oshner's social circle with Latin American dictators and Clinton Murchison and all of these people in a social circle and then he would help start the INCA, the Information Council of the Americas. And I will also read another quote from Dr. Mary's Monkey and so Haslam will say, In the early 1960s, ex-Vice President Richard Nixon called on Oshner in New Orleans, supposedly to discuss his future political plans. Nixon joined Oshner and newspaper editor George Healy for a private luncheon at the exclusive Boston Club across the street from Oshner's INCA. While Nixon and Oshner shared many political sentiments, they also shared some important medical experiences. The ill-fated polio vaccine, which the NIH released during Nixon's vice presidency, killed one of Oshner's grandsons and temporarily crippled his granddaughter. The publicity about the bad vaccine outraged the public and caused a political debacle, toppling the Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare, and routing the leadership of the NIH. Entering the office of president in 1969, Nixon promptly declared a war on cancer, quadrupled the budget of the National Cancer Institute, converted the Army's Biological Warfare Center to a cancer research laboratory, and financed the NIH's viral cancer program. Were these events somehow connected? Had Nixon discussed any of his plans in his war on cancer with the former president of the American Cancer Society? Oshner's second wife, whom he had met at a party at Frawley's house, was even closer to Nixon than Oshner was. Her first husband, an attorney from Los Angeles, was one of the people who helped launch Nixon's political career. When problems with her passport threatened to interfere with Miss Oshner's honeymoon to Greece, she called the White House and asked to speak to Dixon, Dick Nixon. Her problems with the State Department were promptly solved. And now I'm done reading from Dr. Mary's Monkey. But anyways, we will get more into the uh, whole cancer aspect of this as we dive further in this 
a series because now that I'm thinking about it, I'm not going to be able to get through all this information in this episode. We're probably just kind of going to set up the the story and some of the main characters in it before diving into the true theory at the heart of Dr. Mary's monkey. But anyways, um, so keep all that cancer business in the back of your mind. But the reason I chose to read from that right now is just to show you the kind of influence and connection that Oshner has. And Oshner would be the one who would set up Mary Sherman on her career trajectory. And we'll see how all of this relates more to the JF Cassination the further and further that we get. And while Jim Garrison was uh, doing his investigation into the Kennedy assassination, he would say that he wanted to, quote, arrest the whole Oshner gang. But uh, his team thought that that was kind of risky and because it can't be really understated that much how m much the people of New Orleans respected Dr. Oshner and his politics weren't what people knew him for. They knew him for his really incredible research and all of the advances he had made in medicine and all the philanthropy and, you know, charity that he did. And, I mean, as everybody knows in these times of the coof and stuff like this, uh, how philanthropists love to, to control things, like, you know, the Bill Gates of the, of the world and stuff. And that's been going all the way back to the Rockefellers. But anyways... That's what the people of New Orleans knew about Dr. Oshner. And so, yeah, Garrison would say that he wanted to arrest the whole Oshner gang, but, you know, they would only up, end up arresting Clay Shaw, um, which most of you guys have probably seen the JFK movie and have done your own research into this. So I'm sure you know about who Clay Shaw is, and he'll end up factoring more later on. But anyways... Oshner would do everything he could to smear Garrison and Mark Lane in the media. And this would even include fabricating stories about Mark Lane being a BDSM enthusiast and saying that he had been arrested on multiple sodomy charges, which just wasn't true. And also just kind of, you know, painting them as, you know, left wing fanatics also, which isn't very true. And uh, Mark Lane was an interesting guy for those of you who don't know who Mark Lane was. He was really one of the first people to question the Kennedy assassination. And I think that he uh, wrote the first book that kind of implied there being a conspiracy as things. And he would also be a lawyer, if I remember properly, to the people at Jonestown um, after the whole Jonestown debacle happened. And he would say that that was something that was, you know, the intelligence agencies had a hand in. And I believe he'd also go on to write a book about that. So Mark Lane is a very interesting guy. But Oshner would, you know, spend a lot of resources trying to uh, ruin the reputation of Mark Lane and Jim Garrison. And during the Garrison investigation, all of the INCA's records would be flown out to California by a guy named Ed Butler. And Ronald Reagan was the governor at the time, and he would refuse all of Garrison's request for extradition. And it's interesting to note that the INCA's largest financial backer and board member had also donated to Ronald Reagan. So, you know, one can kind of surmise why Reagan wasn't exactly... Um, 
going to go along with, with Garrison on that one. You know, he did not have a financial interest to do such. But now let's get into David Ferry. And this is going to kind of start all piecing together more and more of this and really get us into uh, opening up this story and kind of starting to unthread this whole plot as laid out by Haslam. And then we'll get into kind of questioning that later on. So how does David Ferry come into the picture? Well, we'll start by reading from a Playboy article of all things, because Playboy would do an interview with Jim Garrison, the New Orleans district attorney, uh, who would open up the investigation into the JFK assassination and would, you know, believe that there's a conspiracy going on there. So anyways, the Playboy interviewer says, Penn Jones, Norman Mailer, and others have charged that Ruby was injected with live cancer cells in order to silence him. Do you agree? And Garrison would respond with this very interesting thing that will kind of set us about on our journey and looking into all this. So Garrison would say, I can't agree. Here, I'll do the Southern voice. Back into the left. Back into the left. Okay, maybe I won't do that. But anyways, yeah, I'll do it. It's fun. Why not? I can't agree or disagree since I... No, I'm not going to do it. I can't agree or disagree since I have no evidence one way or the other. But we have discovered that David Ferry had a rather curious hobby in addition to his study of cartridge trajectories, cancer research. He filled his apartment with white mice. At one point, he had almost 2,000, and his neighbors complained. He wrote a medical treatise on the subject and worked with a number of New Orleans doctors, New Orleans doctors on means of inducing cancer in mice. After the assassination, one of these physicians, Dr. Mary Sherman, was found hacked to death with a kitchen knife in her New Orleans apartment. Her murder is listed as unsolved. Ferry's experiments may have been purely theoretical, and Dr. Sherman's death completely unrelated to her association with Ferry. But I do find it interesting that Jack Ruby died of cancer a few weeks after his conviction for murder had been overruled in appeals courts, and he was ordered to stand trial outside of Dallas, thus allowing him to speak freely if he so desired. I would also note that there was little hesitancy in killing Lee Harvey Oswald in order to prevent him from talking, so there is no reason to, suspect, there is no reason to suspect that any more consideration would have been shown Jack Ruby if he had posed a threat to the architects of the conspiracy. And yeah, Jack Ruby kind of was beginning to speak freely. He would, you know, say that the assassination was, you know, the truth would never be known and, you know, kind of claimed that it was a plot that went far beyond him. And it's also kind of strains credulity to think that Jack Ruby, this, you know, mafia, th mafia thug, um, who hated the Attorney General Bobby Kennedy for going after the Mafia, was just so heartbroken over the death of Kennedy that he killed Lee Harvey Oswald after Lee Harvey Oswald said that he was a patsy. You know, so you have Oswald saying that he's a patsy, and then later on you have Jack Ruby saying that the true facts of what happened on November 22nd, 1963 would never be known by the public. But anyways... 
obviously what's of real interest here to us is the mention of Dr. Mary Sherman and her relationship with David Ferry, at least according to Jim Garrison. And I can't exactly figure out where it is that, you know, Jim Garrison says that Ferry and Sherman knew each other. But anyways, let's just kind of end off this podcast with talking about who exactly was David Ferry? Well, Ferry had known Oswald in his days at, in the Civil Air Patrol, which he was very involved with the Civil Air Patrol, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But many researchers believe that one of Ferry's role in the assassination was as the getaway pilot, and it has also been theorized by some that he was flying supplies around for the Kennedy assassination because he was a pilot and he had been known to fly contraband stuff anyhow. And it was reported that in the two weeks leading up to the assassination that Ferry had stayed at the camp of Mafia boss Carlos Marcello. And we'll talk a little bit about Ferry and Car Marcello later on. And this was located across the Mississippi River. And also of note is that David Ferry and Guy Bannister were also believed by many, and I think that there's good evidence to suggest this, were training anti-Castro Cubans at a secret training camp in Louisiana, and that they had stolen um, a lot of weapons and supplies from a CIA front company known as Slumberger Tool Company. And for any of you guys who want to look into that, it sounds French, but it looks German. It's like Schlumberger Tool Company. But anyhow... Uh, Ferry would die leading up to his planned arrest by Garrison for, you know, conspiracy to murder Kennedy. And Ferry's apartment, you know, as stated in the Playboy article, had mice cages in it. And it also had all kinds of other medical equipment. And Garrison's investigators thought that he was attempting to create an assassination weapon for Castro and his followers after, you know, he was claiming that he's trying to come up with a tool to cure cancer, which it's like... I don't know, kind of strains credulity when you really start to think about who it is that David Ferry was, which, man, what a freak. We'll get into how big of a freak he is, but he might be one of the most interesting characters in all of conspiracy lore, at least to me. I mean, he is such a weirdo. But in 1961, Jim Garrison, he would become, you know, the district attorney of New Orleans, and he was tough on organized crime, specifically gambling and prostitution and he began to invest JFK early after the assassination. Like before Oswald was even buried, he was looking into David Ferry after receiving a tip that he was the getaway pilot in a plot that was, you know, extended far beyond Oswald. And they would arrest Ferry and turn him over to the FBI. And Ferry's apartment was raided. And uh, not long after the FBI would release Ferry. And Garrison wouldn't reopen his investigation until three years later when he would be persuaded by Senator Russell Long um, and Russell Long would actually like secretly finance Garrison's investigation through his organization Truth or Consequences and so in February of 1967 the press would reveal to the public that Garrison was investigating the assassination and what do you know it all of a sudden David Ferry shows up dead like immediately after this and Garrison would discover, you know, the, the anti-Castro element first in the plot. But it would be in May of 1967 that he would announce on NBC, you know, on national television before the world, that he thought the killing was a CIA-orchestrated coup d'etat specifically planned by the CIA's plans division. 
Um, and so Garrison also thought that Clayshaw had deliberately set up Oswald as a patsy and that Oswald and Shaw had associated in the summer of, well, this is true. I mean, Oswald and Shaw had associated in the summer of 63 and he tried to get Oswald, uh, and this is according to Hasm that he tried to get Oswald a job in Louisiana at a mental health hospital in Clinton, Louisiana. And, you know, Garrison, when he finally got Shaw on trial, he failed to prove, uh, this connection to the jury or something was going on with you know who knows but anyways he failed to get the conviction that he was after so after this he would charge shaw with 13 counts of perjury but the federal government stepped in and dismissed the charges and while we're on the subject of you know david ferry and kind of what people think of him in relation to the whacking of jfk and just this Playboy article, as you heard in that quote from the article that I read, he was also studying how cartridges are dispensed from a gun, which is also interesting. Just a little side note. I mean, if you were trying to figure out how to stage a sniper's nest for, you know, someone who didn't actually shoot from, you know, I don't know, say the <laughs> school book depository in Texas, uh, that would be something that you would want to know. But anyhow, who knows? That's speculative, but it's something interesting of note. But we'll get into some biographical details of David Ferry and just kind of explain what a freak he is. You know, like Curb Your Enthusiasm. I don't know if you haven't seen that episode. It's a pretty funny one, the Freak Book episode. But David Ferry was born the, to the captain of the Cleveland Police Department and he would be he would be educated in a number of different Catholic schools, and he would spend three years at two separate seminaries, and he would be prohibited from becoming a priest each time. And during his second attempt at becoming a priest, his father would buy him a plane, and this is where he would begin to start flying, and this would be something that would, you know, play a big role in his life. And he would become a teacher and instruct students in a Benedictine school in English and aeronautics. And he also began to work for the Civil Air Patrol, which there's a lot of sus things that can be said about the Civil Air Patrol and, you know, it being used as a way to recruit young men and, I don't know, all kinds of crazy stuff. I think Jimmy Fallon Gong has talked about that, if I'm not wrong. But anyhow, in 1948, he would get in trouble with the Civil Air Patrol for piloting a squadron plane that had been grounded by the Air Force after dark without lights, which is a big no-no, as one can imagine. And then he would identify himself as an Air Force lieutenant after this lightless flight in the middle of the night. Well, I'm a poet. Um, from Columbus to Cleveland, but the paperwork was reported lost. And so he, you know, wouldn't get into trouble that he really should because, I don't know, but paperwork just disappeared. And uh, then cadets would go on to report that Ferry had taken them to a place of prostitution, and this would once again <laughs> land Ferry in some hot water. And he would propose as a solution to all of his shenanigans to transfer to Louisiana and once again, his paperwork would turn up missing. So in 1951, he moves to New Orleans and he finds work as a commercial airline pilot. And he would continue working with the Civil Air Patrol. And this is where he would meet a cadet by the name of Lee Harvey Oswald. 
and he would also teach himself biochemistry in his spare time and take classes in psychology and hypnotism, which, huh, taking <laughs> classes in hypnotism, uh, very interesting. He's kind of got some niche interest, to say the least. Sorry for all the laughing guys, but Fairy never gets old to me. He's such a freak. Um, and, you know... Uh, I should try to find real quick this quote from Ferry um, writing a letter to the U.S. Secretary of Defense. Let me see if I can find that real quick. All right, here's the short letter that he wrote to the U.S. Secretary of Defense. There is nothing I would enjoy better than blowing the hell out of every damn Russian, communist, red, or what have you. Between my friends and I, we can cook up a crew that can really blow them to hell. I want to train killers. So, uh very interesting thing to write to the secretary of defense and who knows maybe the secretary of defense actually read that letter and who knows that's all speculative but it gives you a little glimpse into the mind of david ferry and so uh yeah, he would have two more unsuccessful attempts at trying to become a member of the clergy and this was, oh, I'm, I'm skipping ahead. My my bad, folks. But anyways, um, Haslam was told by some of David Ferry's ex-CAP cadets that Ferry would get, that he got drunk and took a boy on a borrowed plane on a joyride near Treetop Height in New Orleans. And that there was rumors that he even had sex with the boy during the flight. And I think that there's some decent evidence to suggest that uh, David Ferry was a... Uh, bit of a pedo which is no good or uh yeah he was you know into the younger boys and authorities were waiting for him when he returned to the airport and he'd be brought up on indecency charges and they went about trying to take his commercial license so shortly after he lost his position with the cap after misconduct for throwing beer parties for young male cadets and uh insisting on sleeping in their quarters you know so uh, we see that once again fairy is getting himself into trouble had to go retrieve the dog she decided that she wanted to bark i'm gonna see if i can reach out the microphone to her maybe see if she wants to say anything you got anything to say jobs she's not feeling talkative um this subject doesn't particularly interest her. But anyways, we are now back to David Ferry. But brief introduction to Josie the dog. She has been mentioned in previous podcasts, but now you got to hear from her yourself. So anyways, Ferry would have two more unsuccessful attempts at joining the clergy and this time it would be with schismatic Catholic offshoots, you know, because he had failed twice to become a member of the Catholic Church. He'd been raised in Jesuit schools. And uh, I don't know, depending upon your thoughts on the Catholic Church, I guess you could have said that he might have some interests that align with him. I'm, it's surprising he didn't end up at the Vatican. But anyhow, he would be prohibited from joining the Catholic Church. So, yeah, he would try to get involved with all these other offshoots that had broken off um, with the Catholic Church. Um, but, you know, they, they still do their version of a Mass and stuff like that. They probably do, like, the old-school Latin Mass or something like that. I don't know. Now I'm talking about things that I don't really know that much about. 
but he would increase his involvement with the anti-Castro network at this time, and it would be his main gig working as a private investigator for Guy Bannister, the former FBI agent and, like, incredibly racist white right-wing nut job, like, another nut job. I can only imagine uh, the conversations that Bannister and Ferry would have, but... Bannister would join, you know, the police after working in the FBI until he was suspended. And I think he was suspended for, like, beating up a guy or something like that. I don't remember exactly. But he would uh, leave the New Orleans Police Department and become a private investigator. And, uh, I don't know, sometimes private investigators, they're not all Ed Opperman. Let's just say that. There's lots of shady private investigators and guy banister was definitely one of them and his office as a lot of you guys know is on 544 camp street which is just like right across the street from naval intelligence and it is basically the hub for intelligence agencies in new orleans camp street is and so this is where he would have his office and also you know lee harvey oswald on one of his pro castro leaflets that he was caught handing out in the sheep dipping prog pro, you know process with lee harvey oswald um if i remember correctly one of these leaflets that he handed out had you know 544 camp street listed on it and uh yeah, it wouldn't be long, I guess, before uh, Bannister was like, don't put my name, but don't put my address on that. Because out of this same office, Bannister was doing, you know, anti-Castro stuff. Um, so very interesting, very thing worth mentioning. But Bannister, um, in 63, he and Ferry would work for Carlos Marcello. And the lawyer, G. Ray Hill, G. Ray Gill, my, my apologies. And on 11 1963, Bannister and Jack Martin, after a night of drinking, would get in an argument about a missing file. And Bannister would hospitalize Martin by pistol whipping him with his magnum revolver, which many of you guys will remember from the JFK movie. And so Martin, after getting pistol whipped with the glizzy, would go on to tell friends that Bannister and Ferry had been involved in the assassination. And Martin said that Ferry was the getaway man and that he had known Oswald from the Civil Air Patrol. And he would also tell the FBI that he thought Oswald was hypnotized by Ferry into assassinating Kennedy, which I don't think is true, but I think it's a interesting thing for him to, to say. But... Martin would tell Garrison that Ferry and Bannister were up to some awfully shady shit with the Cuban exiles, which I'm sure most of you guys know about. But Ferry assisted in, you know, the military training of these anti-Castro Cubans at a camp around 40 miles outside of New Orleans, and they were planning for, you know, getting Castro himself. And the FBI would raid the camp and find dynamite, aerial bomb casings, napalm ingredients, and other military weapons. And 11 people would be, be detained but released. And the FBI would cover all of this up. And while not proven, it's been said that Ferry was closely involved in the camp's operations and that he procured weapons from the Schlumberger Tool Company that we had mentioned earlier. So 
Oswald would get an office around the corner of Bannister's office at 544 Camp Street and be seen there with Ferry, and Ferry would also have Oswald, Clay Shaw, Perry Russo, and Cuban exiles at his apartment to a party where he got shit-faced and mentioned how Kennedy could be murked in the crossfires of sniper rifles. Um, and, you know, Ferry would also help Marcello, uh, Carlos Marcello, the mob boss, against rfk's racketeering charges and it would be at court with marcello waiting for the not guilty verdict to be read and um later that fateful day he made a trip to dallas and martin called the district attorney and said that ferry was involved in the killing and that ferry would be raided and then ferry was raided and his apartment was you know filled with maps of cuba aerial bomb casings and the medical equipment, and dozens of mice in cages. So a little bit about Perry Russo, um, who we just mentioned. He would coach a basketball team, and one of the athletes was, you know, presumably a boyfriend of Ferry. And Russo went into Ferry's circle to, you know, allegedly get him out of Ferry's apartment that he had moved into. And after losing his airline job, Ferry would move into a smaller apartment, and all his nice furniture and medical equipment was gone, and Russo asked where it went to either Ferry or to one of his boys he couldn't exactly remember, but he was told that it had all been moved to an apartment nearby, which will come into play in our next episode. So, uh, we'll talk later about Dave's apartment and the theory laid out by Haslam of his little lab and his big lab. But anyways, I have been recording for a little while and I think that this is probably a good place to end off the discussion for today. And we'll pick back up next week and we'll talk about some really interesting stuff. And I'll just read you the subtitle of the book, Dr. Mary's Monkey, and it'll give you a little bit of an idea of what's to come. Dr. Mary's Monkey, How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, a Secret Laboratory in New Orleans, and Cancer-Causing Monkey Viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK Assassination, and Emerging Global Epidemics. And we're going to be talking about you heard in this episode about Oshner and how he would inject his grandchildren with the polio vaccine and how one of them would end up dead when he was trying to prove, hey, the vaccines are completely safe. Well, look, I'll give it to my grandchildren. And, you know, shortly after one of them dies and uh, another one of them would be re receive polio from the vaccine. And we'll be talking about simian virus 40 and how this was contaminated in the polio vaccines and whether simian virus 40 causes cancer and if that plays any role in the soft tissue cancer increase that would happen in the years following this mass inoculation with these contaminated polio vaccines. And um, we will also talk about, you know, what role all of this plays in the JFK assassination 
And then we will also look into the character of Judith Very Baker, who, as I stated earlier, I happened to meet at the JFK assassination conference that I went to. And we will question her story and whether she is the real deal or not. And we will kind of just evaluate some of Haslam's claims that he makes in the book. But I think everything that we've stated in this episode that we have covered is stuff that is, for the most part, pretty well documented or, you know, we have some sort of witness account of and we haven't gotten to the part of, you know, Haslam's theory that really relies on a lot of extrapolation and uh, kind of insinuating that because of this, that means this and so in the next episode we're going to have to really dive deeper into a lot of these claims and really question the veracity of some of them and try to figure out what makes sense and what doesn't make sense but it's going to be a wild ride it's uh if you read dr mary's monkey it's a very interesting book to read it's kind of like uh i don't know just a very fun tale you can almost read it as a fiction story that's like i don't know like some sort of like james elroy type thing where it's like a mixture of truth and fiction and it makes for a very interesting read and uh that's not to say that there's not some solid information in the book but there's also some that i think that we need to be dubious of or at least question so we'll kind of get into all of that in the next episode and maybe we'll also talk a little bit about the publisher of the book trying day which is kind of interesting in and of itself they publish a lot of conspiracy books many of them pretty popular and trying day is uh they've published a lot of great stuff and then they've also published some you know stuff that i would be questionable about and uh you know, stuff about written by Peter Lavenda and all all that too. But I'm also very much looking forward to, I believe they're going to be the one who's publishing Whitney Webb's um, Epstein investigation. Um, so I look forward to that and kudos to them on doing that because I think that she's a great researcher. But anyhow, that's the first part of our dive into Dr. Mary's Monkey and so make sure to follow me and look out for the podcast that's come next week if you found all of this interesting and you want to learn more and you kind of want to see where this story ends up and what we can and can't believe but anyhow this is just something that i have thought is very interesting for a long time and it kind of just gave me an excuse to go back and read Dr. Mary's Monkey and reflect my time with my dad at the JFK assassination conference, which is some really good memories for me. And yeah, anyhow, hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. This one is dedicated to my dad. Hopefully he's listening from heaven right now. But yeah, it was a it was a good time and I look forward to talking about this some more next week if you want to follow me on twitter it's thing observer so at thing observer and yeah hope you guys enjoyed hope you guys have a blessed day 
and I'll talk to you guys next week. Oh